This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. Just a quick reminder, we've been talking about these subjects because God is a personal God and we've defined that to mean that not that God is a personal God as in whatever God you make up uh, in your own minds, but that God has attributes of personality. He's not... You know, he's not just a cosmic force. That that does not describe God. God exists in being, and he has attributes of personality. In that, God think uh, thinks, he acts, he feels, and uh, so he is a rational uh, and reasoning being. Uh, however, and so we're created in God's image, and we share some of those attributes, albeit in a very finite manner. And uh, in particular, what just happened then, bro? Let me just um, come out of this again. So in particular, we um, uh, specifically see this in relationship to these attributes that God has of love and communication. So you and I, are, as God's creatures, we're the created ones, he's the creator. So as God's creatures, we're created with these attributes as well that we can love and we can communicate. And indeed, we we would have to say that one very deep aspect of love is this ability to be able to communicate, that love is not a Hollywood emotion. And and so it's something much deeper than that, uh, which we will no doubt see in a bit more detail. Now, let's turn to Acts 17. Uh, You should already be there. Paul at the Areopagus, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. 
Now, Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word this morning. Thank you already for the worship and fellowship we've had uh, for the reading of Scripture. Lord, for the opportunity to come together and share together. We just praise you for such blessings in this nation. Uh, blessings which we see are all the more being taken away in the Western world. And so we pray, help us to utilize these times wisely that we might live to the glory of your name. Amen. Now you can see here in this text that Paul uh, is making it very clear uh, that that carved idols are no way to be able to define God, that he's something, he is something much more than that. And, uh, and he says that we are the offspring of God, that we shouldn't think that somehow God's nature, if we look at the, he's kind of saying, if we look at the complexity of man, we shouldn't think that God can be just carved out of a piece of jade and put on a mantelpiece and then we can worship God as if somehow that is uh, a valid representation of God. And, um, you know, or whatever idol you'd like to make. God extends far beyond that and the God of the Bible is a God who is way, is beyond us being able to carve out images to worship Him. Uh, you know, you can see if you're on social media, there's constantly t-shirts being spruiked uh, to Christians that have these images of Jesus and, and, uh, and yet they have gospel messages and I, I think it's a very offensive thing, uh, to be honest. So, Let's go to the last slide of the previous lesson. Now, when we see that you and I are creatures, we're the created ones in the presence of God, and that the ultimate relationship is one that we can have with God. This is what Scripture talks of, and it demonstrates that from the opening chapters of Genesis, that man was formed by God to have relationship with God and that God communicated with man. And so therefore we are the creatures, we're under God, you and I, all of us. Amen? Anyone here not the creature? Okay. We can recommend a counsellor for you. Um, Because you are. You and I are creatures under God. Okay. So that means that our human relationships are on a basis of equality. These equal rights movements in this day and age are not about equal rights. They're about inequality. They're about putting some people above other people within community or within society. And we all know that that's that's not right. And many people have practiced that down through time. But the Bible brings us all to the same base. It says that you and I are all the creatures We're all the created ones. Therefore, as humans, we share equality of personhood, even though our functions in life may be different. Okay? That's not a problem at all. It's okay to have different functions in life. Mums and dads have different functions to children. In fact, mums have different functions to dads. That's just biology 101. Okay? So it's only then that we can understand that human relationships can provide that which God meant for them to provide. So many young people think, oh, I'll get married and then I will have fill in the blank. 
put whatever you want in there. Then I'll be happy. Uh, then I'll have uh, security. Then I'll have, uh, I'll, I'll be able to have acceptance among other people, whatever it might be. But no human relationship can give what only God can give. We should not be leaning on a human relationship to give us what only God can give us. So does that mean that a marriage gives us nothing? It definitely doesn't mean that. Marriage has biblical intention to bring certain things to each person within the relationship. But outside the boundaries of that is where people often go wrong. They, they say, oh, we, we just began to move in different directions and so we fell apart like we fell together before. You know, expecting relationships to provide more than they should is a false integration point. And this is, this is kind of shown in an exaggerated way in that, um, uh, uh, syndrome, psychological syndrome amongst people called codependency. Co- and codependency is where a, a person relies on being with other people all the time to get some sense of esteem in their own life, some sense of purpose, some sense of meaning. And, uh, and so, uh, that is a false integration point because they're looking for that, those constant relationships with people to give them something that should be coming from elsewhere, coming from a relationship with God. Young people are very prone to this in school. It's called peer pressure. Peer pressure, uh, by peer pressure, they think that by doing something that their peers are encouraging them to do, that they'll get acceptance from their peers when it's usually just more and more manipulation and the process of peer pressure is generally leads in a destructive direction. So this is expecting relationships to give more than they should. And uh, so it's only on the basis of the finished work of Christ that human relationships can be substantially healed in this present life. I want to ask a question. You don't need to make a comment. But how many of you have experienced, just we want to show of hands, so be eager to show your hand, right? A little bit of interaction here, okay? How many of you have ever had a damaged relationship with anybody? All right? It's fairly common, okay? Daz and his mum, that's what Daz is saying, not me, mate. Daz was just pointing at you, so, you know, so, right? Um, it, it's pretty common, in this life. Why is that? Because sin has affected us. You and I have all been affected by sin. Our relationships, therefore, are prone or, or subject to being damaged, many of them. And so, you know, you only have to be involved in an ounce of counselling to know that many people have been damaged by their parents, right? Many people or by their siblings. These are supposed to be the closest relationships in their lives. And and in many cases, even from young childhood, people's lives have been damaged by these toxic relationships. But the inference of Scripture is that you and I can come into Christ and know Jesus as our Saviour and experience a substantial healing in relationships. Substantial is an important word there because it ain't going to be all perfect this side of glory. 
I promise you. If you get saved and you're married to an unbeliever, you may be in for a more difficult time. So don't come back and say, but you said there'd be substantial healing. I can, I can tell you, there are many men and women who have had a lot of opposition from their spouse once they got saved. And, uh, and there are many children who get saved and their parents have brought a lot of opposition against them. I had that kind of experience. So, this is an important point though, because this means that you and I can see a substantial healing in areas of common relationships between parents and children, siblings, your work relationships, etc. Let's put it another way. That our lives as Christians should demonstrate the existence of God. Because the reason we say substantial is you can't guarantee how somebody will respond to you when you love them. When you're at work, for example, and maybe the work environment is toxic there and maybe there's uh, been, uh, you know, what, whatever environment, you, you can fill in the blank on all those things, but you're there and you begin to show impartiality to people, you can become targeted by other people who are very insecure. I'll give you an example. Um, so I'll try and be discreet because it, it concerns my employment, but uh, in one place in which I've worked with within my um, career, I walked in the door and on the first day a, a chap came past me and he said, oh, I believe you're a friend of that effing moron and named the person. And from that day he treated me bad because I knew this other guy. Right, you know, this is blokes, very catty blokes, I have to say. Um, and so, but over time, over time, and demonstrating impartiality and not not showing favoritism to people, I, I went up to him the next day and I said to him, "Listen, I want you to know, I'm not involved in any dispute between you and him, and just because I'm mates with him doesn't mean I can't be mates with you." And he turned his back and walked away. And but over time that has turned around a lot and there's been a really good open door with that fellow. And so, but it's by showing that impartiality and being genuine about it, not being fake about it, but being genuine about it, you and I can then demonstrate the existence of God in our lives because why don't we have to be involved in cliques? Because we can be impartial with people and love each person on, on the merit of that relationship. Now, this means that we demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, even in the workplace. I I really hate the term when people say, oh, this is my secular employment. It's not your secular employment. Your life is not secular and saved. You're not living the unsaved life and the saved life, all right? So your work life is as spiritual as being here in church today. You are there as a testimony of Jesus Christ and in that place you're able to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in your life. We cannot expect the world to believe that we have a relationship with God if we're not demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. And I showed you this quote last week, which I just think is such a beautiful quote. Lovelessness is a sea that knows no shore, for it is what God is not. 
And Schaefer went on to say this from Francis Schaefer. He went on to say, and eventually not only will the other man drown, but I will drown. And worst of all, the demonstration of God drowns as well when there is nothing to be seen but a sea of lovelessness and impersonality. God is love. Yes, God will judge. But we're called to be discerning and yet also to offer people a demonstration of the love of Christ in our workplace. God is rational. God is relational. We're not an island in the workplace. We're we're called to demonstrate these attributes of God in the workplace. God is merciful and truthful. Yes, God is righteous and a judge. We, We get that one pretty quick, you know, as Christians. So what are these qualities mean without relationship if you and I do not have a relationship with God these qualities are really meaningless God calls us into relationship with him so that out of that relationship with him we would be a testimony to the world around us of God's existence that then your light is shining Now, let's move on. Isn't pride an ugly thing? Like the person who said, I thank the Lord that I'm so humble. I'm proud of my humility. You know, when you see something right in another person or good in another person, it minimizes yourself. Because what is happening when you see someone who can, uh, who, who shows some good attribute, some right attribute, and when you acknowledge that, you are taking the light off yourself and saying, look at this, look at this person. And that is a step of humility. This helps creature to creature, human to human relationship. This helps that. Because now ego is being removed from the situation. Do you see what I mean? It's a very simple concept, this, but it's an important one because the opposite can be very dangerous. When we see wrong or bad in people, and I'm not saying to not be discerning here, I'm just saying that we have to be careful how we see people and whether we take a humble approach toward relationships or whether we take a proud approach towards relationships because when we exalt ourselves, this can be very dangerous to our fellowship and our communion with God. We are called, as individual believers, you and I are called to serve one another. Serving is not exalting, it is getting below and lifting up the other person. That's the very nature of biblical love, that you and I would lift up those around us. And so when we see someone who is struggling, rather than standing over them in a lordly kind of manner, we get down with that person and we lift them up. That's the biblical response. It can be very dangerous if we approach this in a wrong manner. In fact, 
It can be so dangerous, it's possible that we can, when we're right, be wrong. I'm not saying to you and I, I'm not saying to abandon what is right. Okay? So don't go down that track track there. Down that truck. I love trucks. Don't go down that track. I'm, I'm saying that that when we're right about something, we can still be wrong in our actions. When can right be wrong? Well, if it's self-exalted, it's wrong. Our fellowship with God can be damaged in that way. It is not wrong to be right. It's not wrong to be right. But it is wrong to have the wrong attitude in being right. It's wrong to be proud in being right. And to forget that our relationship with our fellow man has to be personal. It's wrong when we do that. If I really love someone and how are we to love others as ourselves if I really love someone as I love myself I will long for them to be all they can be and this is not a positive self-help message right? but to be all that they can be on the basis of Christ's finished work at Calvary that will start with salvation I will desire for that person to be saved. I will desire for that person to find, to hear the will of God for their lives and then pursue that. I will long for them to do this. Some of you met um, our friends last week, David and Kathy, who are in India. Uh, We came out of the same fellowship and I can tell you, that there is a ladder mentality within that organization of a hierarchy where people will climb over each other to get higher and higher in the organization. And it's become an endemic problem, uh, part of the organization. And that is not built on this model of humbly serving. What did Jesus do with his disciples' feet? He washed their feet. Now, they hadn't just stepped out of a shower. When he washed their feet... Those manky feet, he washed them. This, this wasn't just the, you know, this, this um, Catholic version where they all sit on the throne after the Pope's elected and chosen, whatever had, takes place, and uh, they all sit on their pontifical uh, thrones and, and he comes along with a, a thing of water and he splashes a bit on the feet and damps it off with the towel and, uh, and stuff. This is not like that. This is Jesus washing their feet. They knew this was not great because one of them protested and said, Lord, don't do this. Let me wash yours. Jesus made it pretty clear to him the nature of this experience. So we should desire to see other people become what God wants them to be. Not looking for people's faults. (laughs) Yeah, I knew it. I knew Craig was like this. I just knew it. I knew I couldn't trust Joanne, that American accent. 
you know. You know, that's that's not Christianity. And and we're making light of it, but it happens. Christians constantly on the lookout with with a speculative eye about their brothers and sisters rather than looking for opportunities to lift one another up. In fact, I think that less than this is sin. Because we're breaking the second commandment. What was it again? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Second of the great commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you want people to be speculative about you? Do you want them to look for opportunities to put you, put you down so they can elevate themselves? Right? This is this position. Are we saying overlook the wrong in people? Not saying that at all. Overlook their sin? Not saying that at all. But treat it with true Christian compassion. Go to your brother and sister and say, hey, can I pray for you? I might be wrong here. I've noticed this. Can you, can you help me to understand this? Because you may be wrong in what you've seen. We are to love our neighbor as ourself. Mark 12, 31. There, there is another principle found in 1 Corinthians 13. It says that love rejoices not in iniquity. I have sat with pastors at breakfasts who have celebrated the fall of people that they were not pleased with. I may have even done it myself. You probably have too. Maybe. Because we have to be careful because in that we are trying to show our superiority to that person. I love the fact that when Jim Baker, all those years ago, Jim and Tammy, Tammy Faye Baker, who would put all that makeup on and they'd get on television and cry so that people would give them more money in the Praise the Lord Network. Some of you are thinking, what are you talking about? You're just not old enough to remember. So that's okay. Or praise God you didn't have a television and you weren't subject to it. But um, the, there was all kinds of corruption. He went to prison, I think, for 10 years. And there a, uh, a Baptist minister went in daily and talked with him. And there he repented and uh, got things right with God. And he released a book. And the book was called, I Was Wrong. I love that. I love that because that there is putting it out, isn't it? What should be the Christian... I knew it. I knew it. He was wrong. I knew it. That shouldn't be the Christian response. We should rejoice that this man has seen his failings and that it's become real to him and that he's been able to give uh, that public demonstration. Remember... You and I are all the creatures, one another, equal with one another. Now, the next practical question 
if I'm to see myself as an equal to all other men, and if I see that I live in a fallen world in which there desperately needs to be an order imposed, and we're seeing this order in chaos around the world, where is this social order to come from? Because it's looking more like Lord of the Flies at the moment. I'll tell you. That's a, that's a book you should read. Where does this social order come from? Because men have wrestled with this philosophically. They've wondered why man creates social structures and all this kind of stuff. And no matter way, no matter how strange you think customs of other uh, uh, nationalities may be, there is always some kind of social order within those nationalities. But let's consider God's foundational command regarding human relationships. So we, we've now taken one step past loving God. Now we're looking at the other side of things. Honour your father and mother. This is God's foundational command on human relationships. And every mum and dad will say, Amen. Amen. So, you know, we lived in Asia for six years, Suzanne and I, and uh, we have seen some guilt trips like you can't imagine. You know, some of those Asian parents, they know how to guilt their parents, uh, their children. So, you know, I'm your mother. How could you disrespect me like this? After all, I've sacrificed for you. You know, and they can put it on like no one else can. Us, us Westerners, we just really don't get the art of a good guilt trip. And uh, unless you're a Roman Catholic, you, you've been, you've grown up with it there. But this is the core of the matter. That, that there is established within this command to honor your mother and father. There is established as creatures, Equal before God, there is established an order of relationship there that has a basis of authority to it. That God puts parents in a supervisory role over the children and children are to go up through life honoring their parents and that parents ideally are bringing those children to a place of maturity and bringing them off to in that maturity to where the children are moving off in life into an autonomous independence uh, stage and that they still, though, show respect and love and honour to their parents. But the, the authority structure changes as they move out and form their own families, etc., etc. So this does not mean that with that established order that everything is perfect. And the parents will say, oh, yeah, you should see the hearts of my children. They do some terrible things. And... And and they get to see your heart too, you know. And they know they know that your heart, you know, you do some terrible things as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and all the kids go, Amen. <laughs> Honor your father and mother. Parents that are to love children on a personal level. Within this framework, it's not just a relationship of authority. This is a relationship of love. And so within that structure of authority that God gives, 
parents are to lovingly raise their children. The scripture speaks over and over and over about providing that framework and guiding and nurturing, about mentoring in wisdom, about teaching and admonishing, about disciplining, chastening, all these kinds of things that are the responsibility of parents. And so this relationship includes the office of parents. That's the, you know, that's the station of life that you come into when you, you, if you're doing it biblically, when you marry and then you have children, you then go into an office called being a parent. And that becomes a function of your life in parenting. And there are many responsibilities in that, but but this relationship includes not only the office of parents, but it in, is it's under this um, uh, understanding that these children are equals with those parents in this idea of being creatures, that that they are the the created ones. They're both humans who are equal. They have functions that are seemingly unequal. This is important because the people this will liberate are both the parents and the children. You you know, when you hear women say, I just want little Susie to be my best friend as she grows up, just her and I, we're just like besties, you know, that's false. That's false and it's ridiculous to think that way. You're not called in life to be their BFF. You know, you're called in life to be their parent and you'll probably have to tell them some things as they get older that they might hold a grudge to, even for a long time. But you maintain your Christianity, you stand firmly on the Word of God and you love them despite the hurt you may feel and God will bring those children back to you. And I can say amen to that. Because we've experienced that. And so it's important that you and I understand this, that while a child is a minor, he still has been created on an equal level. He's human. Parents are not intrinsically higher. The function they have is a function of responsibility over the children. And they're not doing that responsibly if their children uh, are, you know, 30 years old and can't think or behave independently and all these kinds of things. So for a certain number of years, there is this relationship that goes on, this office of parenting and the subjection of children. And if and children, if you willingly subject yourself to your parents in a biblical way, you will gain much wisdom out of that. God will teach you much out of that. So the child is not just to have, you know, the the parents aren't just to exist in this office and lord it over their children. It's a relationship of love. The children also are not just to see their parents as Mr. and Mrs. Bossy Boots. There's to be a relationship of love from the children to the parents as well, honouring their parents, honouring the office that they have because they they will make some very tough decisions 
at times and they're going to use the best judgment that they can in that time coming from the dysfunctional history that they have in life as sinners who've come to Christ. You and I have got some dysfunction. Coming from that, they're going to make decisions in life that you'll scratch your head at. Understand they're doing the best they can with that. And if they're submitting themselves to God and to his word, he will bring wisdom into their lives for that. I'll tell you, if you and I allow a less than functional relationship between parents and children to exist, it's not only wrong, it leads to a lot of sorrow. Go witnessing. Go witnessing and you will meet people who will tell you how much they hate their mother, hate their father. I went and had a haircut recently and and uh, within 20 minutes, the hairdresser was uh, explaining to me that uh, how much her fiancé has just had such a terrible relationship with his parents and hates his mother and father and basically doesn't know his father but hates his mother as well. Things are pretty bad for a bloke to hate his mum. Most blokes are pretty forgiving to their mothers. Things are pretty bad in that situation. Then she got on to her life and things were marginally better but not much. Does the Bible speak about human relationships? Let's turn to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. It's a long passage. Therefore, do not be foolish or do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all good things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Does that speak about relationships? Right? That speaks about our relationships with each other and it's saying, listen, Drunkenness can damage relationships. How about being under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit so that you can then edify one another in these various different ways, including submitting to one another. Verse 22, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the saviour of the body. Here we have office but equality. Okay, Paul will say in Galatians, if you read there, that there's no restriction on who can come to Christ, that all can be saved, male, female, slave or free man, Jew or Greek, all can come by faith. So he's not saying there's inequality or women are unsavable, right? He's saying that there is a structure within the family under Christ as head. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands... Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Please, men, read that verse. Read that verse. Think about how you talk to your wife. Think about the things you do or don't do for her. 
Let God convict you if needed. Because it is in this love that the next verse is couched. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. This sanctifying of your spouse is going to come out of the depth of the relationship you have born in love. It'll be hard for you to see her sanctified and growing if you are treating her with mental torture. Or if you are being cold as stone to her and not and not allowing the, the relationship to grow. Or if you're not serving her as Christ loved the church and gave himself. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let his wife, uh, let the wife see that she respects her husband. You want to damage your relationship, women. Speak disrespectfully, publicly about your husband. I'm sick of hearing that kind of stuff, to be honest. It is so destructive. Men are a bit fragile with this because this is one of the keys to men's relationships with other men. You will often hear them say, among the very first words, when you say, oh, you know, I believe you know so-and-so. Yeah, I really respect him. It's a foundational thing in men's relationship is to be able to respect another man. And so when a woman speaks disrespectfully about her husband, I guarantee you, you're just pulling him down. And you are doing nothing to enhance the relationship from your side. It's not, it's not a wishful thinking that he says, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Well, you don't know, there's nothing to respect in him. There'll be something. Respect it. Find it and respect it. Show respect for that. Show, let him know how proud you are of him for X, whatever that is. I oh, put some rubbish bins out each week. Start with that. Start with that. Start with that. Let it be that, first of all. He does tell me he loves me. Move on to that. Good. There's a beginning place. He may, he may be a blunderer. He might, have many failings, but so do you. And you are coming into this relationship as equals, having different functions under Christ, but as equals. So husbands, get off your backside, show sacrificial love to your wife, and wives, show a bit of respect. And you know what, husband, maybe if you're not being respected, maybe have that discussion. That'll set the cat among the pigeons. (laughs) Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Dads, we've been known to do that every now and then. 
but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. I, I've been known to do that every now and then, I can promise you. I'm surprised Courtney and Jad are not saying, Amen. Um, but, you know, I've been known to, <laughs> known to provoke my children to anger. There's something about us blokes, you know? And, and your wife will gently reach her hand out and she'll say, you're going too far with this, you know? Yeah, yeah. So. Now there's more relationships here. Look at verse 5. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Let's bring it over into our Western 21st century world and, you know, be a good employee. Show respect to your employer. Ask them how you can help their company. And it, try and achieve that. Do that. It's no loss to you. It's very easy for us to criticize our employers and be put ourselves a little higher than them. You know? Not with eye service as men pleasers. So don't just do it when the boss is walking past. But as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Wow. The will of God as a bond servant. Right? This is not a slave, not the same thing. You should do some, we haven't got time to go into that. Verse 7, with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. He'll treat you no differently than your servant when the day comes. When that day comes, you'll stand before him as equals. No partiality. Oh, we can be so partial, can't we? So each case that's mentioned here is both legal and relational. There is this structure of social order within that relationship but there is the relational aspect to it as well where God speaks to us within the structure of society that we're in and so at your home you might be right up here just under Christ and you go to work and you might be right down there you know as the lowest rung in the corporation right in 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 my job you don't get much lower than where than where um, I'm at you know we're we're down there pretty low uh, in that job doesn't matter though work as to the Lord I, that need, we need to remind ourselves of in your family do that which God has called you to unto him I've had young people ask me but my parents want me to do X and it's, it's something of sin and how do I honour them when they want me to do this? Or my parents, they've forbidden me from going to church and meeting with Christians. What do I do? And and I've said to them, you've got to think about this text, first of all, and, and they have to be clear in their conscience that, first of all, God does not want you to sin. So how do you honour your parents? You honour your parents by doing that which is right. And even though your parents might not like that, you are honouring them before God. What do we do about the parents who say a child can't go to church? Well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. 
So there can be one thing there, but it's important to get some fellowship. And so, uh, you know, most of the time when someone comes out of a very rigid community, going to church becomes that dividing line for them when they become a believer and uh, and it becomes very difficult. And I've we've seen, having lived in Macau with the Chinese community, that, that many of the Chinese kids were treated that way by their parents when they got saved. But as the years went by, those relationships were restored and even uh, in some cases parents have or siblings have been saved as a result of the testimony of those children doing that which is right before God first of all as an honour to their parents. I put it a little differently with my mum when she complained about the decisions I made as a Christian. I said to her, well you raised me to be independent. So... Now, it might have been a bit cheeky, but, you know. This is, these, this is the structure of relationships that we have. Now, this also comes into the church. The church is not to be a place of chaos. The church has a structure to it. In First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, the elders who are among you. You see, we often think the opposite to this. We think of church as being this top-down pyramid-style thing. Flip the pyramid around. There may be few people who serve in eldership, but they are there to serve the church. The body of the church is to be able to travel on their shoulders, so to speak. So, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. This is this is getting right at the heart. Peter's getting right at the heart of motivation. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but by being examples to the flock. There are relationships within the body of Christ. There are offices within the body of Christ, there are deacons, elders, overseers, all these kinds of things. But in the midst of this, Peter is saying, you know what, those who have the rulership over the church are actually to serve the body. That's the function. (coughs) Peter pleads with these leaders, you know, that, that... they, they've got to try to keep these relationships holy and healthy, saying don't do it out of compulsion and don't do it for the wrong kind of gain. You're not in the job for money. Come on. There's to be an order in the church. There's to be order in the family. There's to be order in society. There's to be order in the workplace. It's not all chaos. We need to demonstrate this order in our society today because mobs like Antifa are are relishing the chaos. chaos. They love this kind of stuff. They want social order to break down. And so I think the real key to social order is the family as God created it. It's not the church. It's the family. Your family. 
run biblically. To the best of your ability, your family may not look like the biblical family. What does a biblical family look like? Christ, husband, mother, or husband, father, husband, wife, sorry. Let's start again, yes. Christ, husband, wife, children, the biblical family. And, and definitely within the, the, uh, Bible times, that extended further, you know, because families often lived in a small commune style of property where they build extensions onto the property and the children, uh, often lived there. The sons would bring their spouse into the family and the, the little extension or a part of the property, property was separated for them to live in. These kinds of things. That's all good. All good. Functioning in a biblical manner, raising children to adulthood, raising them so that they understand their responsibility and accountability in life. So, this, I don't think we can overstate the importance of family and in our society. And so, you know, if you find yourself as a single mum, then bless God, your life is under Christ. Raise your children as biblically as you can. And use the men around you from within the Christian community to help bring that male influence into your children's lives. They need that. They need that. I tell you, children need the influence of both women and men. And too many women within our society and this is uh, look I'm going to get down a, a trap a rabbit warren here um, regarding social welfare but uh, but women that raise children deliberately separated from all men do a disservice to those children emotionally mentally uh, they do a huge disservice to them in that regard now if your circumstances are thus do the best you can with what you've got bring that to God let him be a father to the fatherless. Yeah. Look at the attributes of God and bring that into the children's lives. Yeah. I was recently reading a study. Uh, it's a lengthy one called The Boy Crisis. And it talks about the um, uh, children with ADD and where both parents are present. ADD levels, uh, ADD and ADHD levels are both similar with the boys slightly higher in the percentage. You know, girls, uh, and I'm going to be wrong with the numbers, so I'll just go with any number, the first ones that come to mind. The girls are like 20% and boys are like 25 It's not that, all right? But just using numbers, trying to keep them around. When you take the father out of that family, and now the, boy, the boys are being, the children are being raised by a single mum, the girls' rates rise to where the boys were before, and the boys' rates go up by about three times to over 70% of ADD and ADHD. And it's, it's an alarming statistic, very alarming, because you can see in our society, like children are going to school on drugs because of this issue, and they're not focusing properly, and they're not able to... And this slows the development of boys' brains greatly because they're not, they're not able to fully engage emotionally because they're bombed. You know, 
And so the the um, uh, man, the doctor who was writing this um, this article, was saying that one of the reasons, a very simple reason, that the ADD rates increase, but especially among boys, is because fathers have a singular focus. And so the child will be eating dinner and say, "Can I have ice cream?" And there'll be two different approaches generally by mums and dads. Mums will say, "When you finish your peas." And the child will take a spoon and say, is that enough? And negotiate all the way through, trying to get away with eating the peas. Where dads will say, eat all your peas and you can have ice cream. And dad won't let them go until they've eaten all the peas. All of them. Every one. Because that's the deal. And so what that is doing, that very simple step from men and women... The difference, the simple step is that, and this is not all women and it's not all men, but this is generalisms we're talking about. But generally, women will negotiate this thing and a lot of emotional guilt tripping is put on the mum because, but mum, I hate bees and all this sort of stuff, you know. And and the dad is, well, like, well, too bad, they're good for you, eat them up. And, And he brings in this singular focus to the child and the child learns to focus on a task and get it done. And it's that simple. It's that simple. And, you know, Suzanne and I, we're not sharing this with her. We laugh so much because Suzanne and I are both kind of the same on these types of things. You know, stay there and eat your peas. You know, so. All right, I'm going to close with this. Um, because man is a rebel, isn't he? And there needs to be order in this poor old world. Um and it needs to start with your families. And um, so we use the office that God gives us or the offices that God gives us, which may be many, whether in the state, in the home, in the church, whatever. All exercise of authority should be for God's glory and for man's good. So mums and dads, the authority God has given you in your home is not so that you can lord it over your children and relish the moment to smack their bottoms. You know, that's not it. That's not it. It is for the glory of God and for the blessing and benefit of your children. It's to come at this relationship with your children at a a spiritual and emotional and a physical level that you can nurture your children in their needs. The exercise of biblical authority is to allow the Bible to speak into a situation. Elders are equals, but they have specific functions. And so we might look up to them and have some respect for them, but they are to look at themselves as serving the body of Christ. I so enjoyed when Jeff Pittman was here and we we had some discussion about this with the elders, uh, about how they approach it in his church in Brisbane. And the elders are strictly under instruction that their function is to serve the body of Christ in every way that they can. To serve. And they all do it voluntarily. There's no gain there. And so this is not only, you know... This is the function. Like, so if you feel God calling you toward these, this office of leadership, then get ready because that's what we're going to push.
your service to the body. So, Christianity's exercise of love is demonstrated to people, not to an, that should be abstract idea called humanity. Humanists love the idea of humanity as an abstract idea. They just, let's do good to all man everywhere and, and they, they love that idea. But the Bible calls you and I into relationship with one another. It calls us to love our neighbour. It's a very specific individual, isn't it? The person who has need. So, to exercise love to people in this fallen world will cost you something, just as it did cost Jesus. It's going to cost you. Driving along, you see that person struggling with that tyre on the side of the road. I don't know if I've got time. I don't know, sometimes it may be a legitimate excuse. But being late for church is not one. You're late most of the time anyway. (laughs) Did I just say that? (laughs) But, but you know... (laughs) It'll cost you something to exercise love. Let's do it though. What happens when someone is hurt by my sin? We're going to pick that up there next week because there's a fair bit in this. So that gives you a little clue as to where we're going. What happens when someone is hurt by my sin? Let's, let's close off here. I, I won't keep going forward. You'll see all the, all the secrets for next week. Then you won't turn up. So, and you might not want to know. Oh, we're going to get amongst it then. What happens when someone is hurt by my sin? We'll get amongst it then. So, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, this morning. Uh, Thank you so much for these people and their patience. Uh, Lord, we praise you uh, for a lesson such as this. And help us, Lord, that as we uh, go from the insulated world of fellowshipping with other believers and out into the world around us, Lord. Help us to remember that that is not our secular life, but that we're living as Christians under you in this world around us. Help us, Lord, to be truly people who would let our light shine to those around us, that we would show and demonstrate the reality of your existence to all we encounter. We praise you in the name of Christ our Lord and our Messiah. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.